Hey guys, welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Eliza Kelly, and today I am very, very delighted to introduce my guest, Mitch Horowitz, who is a historian of alternative spirituality and a Sagittarius. Yes. And a new moon Sagittarius born on an eclipse, which I guess you just figured out for the first time ever right now important stuff. <laughs> it's interesting. I've been reading my chart for years and I never realized I was born under a new moon eclipse. So. Yeah. So we will definitely talk about that. But before we get into it, I have to um, acknowledge your very awesome Misfits shirt. Misfits are have always been one of my absolute favorites. I saw them in at the Prudential Center last year. Oh, lucky. And I'm contemplating whether or not I'm going to see them at Madison Square Garden this in October. That's going to be quite the scene. Yeah, it is. I I have mixed feelings about um, the misfits being at Madison Square Garden. Yes. It's a little strange. <laughs> it's a little strange, but you know, I Glenn Danzig and Jerry Only are are making that money. Yeah, I love Glenn Danzig. He's yes. actually been a huge inspiration of mine and I was told he was at one of my lectures in LA, but I really? didn't see him, but you know, I'm glad I didn't know until afterwards I would have been a wreck. I know. I, wow. That is, that's a big deal. That's very cool. Yeah. He's a really interesting character. And actually I've seen some as a cool, and a cool segue. I don't know if you've seen these old videos of him, um, demonstrating his own occult library, but he, in his sort of like late eighties, real, like carving out that Danzig niche persona yes. has did all of these home videos of going through his personal library of the occult collection. Yes. Um, then they're fabulous videos. Well, <laughs> Glenn is a walker of the left-hand path, shall we say, as I am. So he and I have a lot in common and a lot of affinities and interests. So that's an awesome place to start. So, so when you say the left-handed path, what does that describe? What does that mean? Well, the left-hand path, I suppose, could be contrasted with more traditional spirituality insofar as in... Judeo-Christianity, we say, thy will be done. And on the left-hand path, you might say, my will be done. It's a belief that the individual's own sense of affirmation and creativity and self-expression are the holiest, most sacred expression of life. And the individual's wishes and desires are themselves sacred and holy, and you cultivate that. It doesn't mean you don't have a belief in reciprocity or karma. It's not necessarily a go-it-alone approach, but it is a belief that individual creativity is the highest form of self-expression, both physical and extra-physical. And does this differentiate from humanism? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I was just watching the movie Devil's Advocate the other night, and Al Pacino plays the figure of Satan, and in a monologue toward the end, he declares, I'm a humanist. So that's an interesting <laughs> question for you to ask. I don't use the term humanism myself only because I tend to, well, people usually associate humanism with a secular life path, and my path is definitely metaphysical or spiritual, by really, which I mean a search for extra physical causes and a, and a belief that we exist both within the physical and the extra physical. So it could be compared to humanism, although that's not a term I use myself because I, I tend toward the metaphysical. How did you get started with all of this? I suppose this became an interest when I was a kid growing up in Queens at age nine. I used to take out books on mythology and 
folklore and the occult from the local public library. And it was a great time to grow up with those interests. He would flick on the television and Mike Douglas would be interviewing some robed guru and Merv Griffin would be interviewing <laughs> astrologers. And, you know, I overheard my sister, my older sister on the phone with her friends wondering whether Ringo Starr and John Lennon shaving their heads meant that they were indicating their solidarity with Charles Manson, which I don't think they were, but it was a very exciting time where the occult was in the air. And I retained that into adulthood. For many, many years, I worked in metaphysical publishing. And today I'm full-time as a writer and speaker, but I was really fortunate to rediscover my occult interests in adulthood that I had a passion for as a kid. It's something I wish for everybody. If you can rediscover the thing that turned you on when you were in grade school, you're on your way because totally. the passion that that infuses into your work and into your life is extraordinary. And I've been very fortunate in my life and in my work as a historian and as somebody who documents metaphysical experience. It's a total disillusion between work and play. I can't get enough of it. And I realized at a certain point that there wasn't a really good historical record being kept of some of the figures who were heroes to me, like Madam H.P. Blavatsky and the occult scholar Manly P. Hall or the medical clairvoyant Edgar Casey. And I thought that I needed to write these histories myself. So that formed the basis of my first book, Occult America, which came out in 2009, about 10 years ago. So since then, I've never looked back. That's so cool. I, I love that. I love that story. And I do think that what I always emphasize is there are no coincidences. And when you find yourself in a situation being drawn or pulled to a particular curiosity, that exists for a reason. Yes. And, you know, there's a reason that as a young person, you may have found yourself, or at least I did. I was always like that kid at the sleepover who was trying to get everyone to do a seance, to play light as a feather, stiff <laughs> yes. as a board all the time. And <laughs> bust I'm still out the that weed. kid. I am still right? that, I also am still that kid. Yeah. I think that there's absolutely a, a reason that this type of work pulls people in. Um, in your field, how many people, how many contemporaries do you have at this point who are also sort of researching and lecturing and, and going deep within their studies? Well, to be honest, I feel there's really a very small handful of people who are working on occult historicism with real seriousness and who might classify themselves as I do myself, as believing historians. They're participants in the field, but they're also really dedicated to serious principles of historicism and journalism. I would name my colleagues Richard Smoley, Gary Lackman, but just a very, very small handful of folks. But they are out there, and they're doing good work. There's others, and I really encourage that because I think the level and the quality of literature that is coming out of the occult field should be going through a renaissance. Because in some regards, uh, the field, we've been through so much and we've seen so much sensationalism and we've seen our own history butchered in the mainstream that I think that has produced a really solid generation of scholars. It's not very large, but it is growing. There's also great literature coming out of Wicca. I'm thinking of Pam Grossman's recent book. And it's, it's a small cohort, but I think it is growing. Yeah, I I definitely think that there is this this moment that's happening right now where there's this mysticism revival. Um 
And historically, and, and you would speak to this better than I'm sure I could, that usually this movement towards spiritualism and occultism corresponds with a time of upheaval. Yes. Um, and at least, you know, dating back to the mid 1800s, I guess, sort of the 1870s, 1880s, which is really when we saw our modern day tarot decks being created yes. with the Hermetic Order. That was also right after that was right after the Civil War. That was during the Reconstruction era. Yes. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Oh, I think that's a wonderful observation. And we're living through a moment right now where impeachment proceedings were announced last night. And of course, you know, we're all expecting the upcoming election to be very fractious. And in one sense, it's difficult times, but in another sense, people should watch very, very carefully for a great deal of energy to be unleashed. It could be chaotic at times, but when these seismic shifts occur, enormous amounts of energy are unleashed. And you see events within occult studies, for example, mirroring events within the art world. You know, you will always see after periods of upheaval, new inventions, innovations coming out in art, in the theater, in culture. And I don't mean to suggest that any of that counterbalances some of the human suffering that goes on, which we have to take seriously, but there is a huge amount of energy that gets unleashed. So, you know, for your listeners who are contemplating new projects of a cultural or occult variety, it's an extraordinary moment and it's something to watch for. So when you're saying energy, how are, what does that mean in in the way that you're describing it here now? Well, I all believe, I believe that we all participate in a kind of infinite mind. Let's say the Greeks called it noose. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the oversoul. Napoleon Hill called it infinite intelligence. Swedenborg called it a divine influx. I think there is a non-localized intelligence that we all participate in. And we feel the effects of seismic events within that infinite intelligence, whether it's the tragedy of 9-11 or whether it's the political upheaval today. And it can really ramp up the passions, the emotions, and the intellectual acuity that people feel. And I would say that's something that we all want to participate in. We shouldn't run away from. This is interesting, too, that the conversation went here. Again, no coincidences. <laughs> I recently started a, um, a, a group online called the Constellation Club, which is uh, ostensibly a cosmic coven. We're on a chat room. We're chatting 24-7 in different channels about everything ranging from um, tarot to astrology to psychic abilities to self-care to herbs. Everything is sort of, you know, has its own little pocket where we can explore. And in the psychic abilities channel, it, we, it, you know, September 11th just passed very recently. And we were talking about our experiences, you know, all, all identifying as, you know, either empaths or highly sensitive people, or just people who are aware of their consciousness. And many people agreed that that was the first time that they realized that they had this high sensitivity mm -hmm. and this high level of empathy. Um, I was in school, I was in New York City on the Upper East Side when September 11th happened, and I was so deeply affected mm -hmm. by this. I mean, obviously I was in the same place as it, so that's you know going to leave an impact, but it was haunting. Yes. Um, and in this strange sort of 
morbid way, I became like obsessed with going down to ground zero. I was cutting school, going down to ground zero, collecting newspapers mm -hmm. that had not been collected on September 11th and creating this sort of archive of death, if you will. And it was, I w was so embarrassed. I didn't even want, it was so weird and freaky what I was doing, but I became sort of obsessed with trying to solve it and figure out what was what was buried in this and if there was some sort of answer within this doom and yes you know it's interesting then to think of sort of the 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 idea of like the phoenix rising from the ashes right yes. and what can come from this tragedy and this trauma um but i do think that when we are, are experiencing in the collective consciousness on such a macro level i mean we have the, the amount of gun violence that we're experiencing the person who's in office right now everything is just it's so much stimuli that we're experiencing that of course are high levels of sensitivity and our awareness is is reaching it's uh, another dimension on in the collective yes and i like that you use the word stimuli and that relates to something i'm very interested in which is esp research i am i write a, a fair amount about academic serious esp research which continues to go on even though People who do such research are always in a difficult funding situation on college campuses and other places. And apropos of 9-11, uh, there was a parapsychological lab at Princeton University, which has recently closed, unfortunately. It was called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. And one of their projects was to use what are called random number generators. And these random number generators are just a machine that spit out a random pattern of numbers or lights. And they will attempt to pair a subject who might have some sort of extra mental abilities or ESP abilities with a random number generator and see if he or she can interrupt the pattern of randomness and create a pattern where there shouldn't be one. And that might show statistical evidence for some sort of telekinesis or something like that. I mean, the scientists at Princeton placed a variety of random number generators at different places around the world. And they found that when the events of 9-11 occurred, these machines that were supposed to be spitting out just random patterns uh, started to display evidence of patterns. The randomness got interrupted. And so there was some question as to whether the global trauma that was being experienced was actually showing up at in some fashion that we don't understand in electronic networks. So it's just an interesting piece of statistical law that demonstrates, I think, uh, some kind of extra physicality, even though we don't understand the delivery mechanism or always what triggers it. Although what triggers it seems to be either moments of euphoria or trauma. We're very much emotional beings, probably more so than we are intellectual beings. And so there were patterns in the chaos of these random number generators, which is suggestive of the possibility of there being some sort of a, a shared psyche or consciousness or infinite mind. That I, I would say that that is if if that was occurring at that time, and I absolutely believe it was, and it's, it's very cool that there is some sort of data to showcase that since data is to me such a, uh, I hate that word. Yeah. <laughs> I hate when people, I hate when people talk about data because it is, it, it's so discrediting. Yes. Um, and I'm sure that you have found, I mean, I'm sure that you are 
having conversations with either you call them skeptics or trolls or even conservative right wing evangelistic people all the time. Um, and how do you sort of communicate what you do and, and the evil quote unquote of it, or if it's not backed up by data or how do you like justify your work? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Well, first of all, I know the word data can be thrown around in a very casual way. It can be used almost as an epithet or as something that's intended to discredit experience. And I take experience very seriously. So on one hand, I will talk about the existence of testimony. Scientists will sometimes call it anecdote. I'm not, I have no problem with that term either, but human testimony is deeply important. The fact that something occurred doesn't necessarily mean that it's always repeatable or that it's repeatable under a same set of circumstances. But the absence of repetition does not mean that it did not occur. But I don't shy away from data either. And that's one of the reasons why I care so deeply about academic ESP research, because for 80 some odd years, scholars in the U.S. and in other parts of the world have been compiling really heavily juried, unimpeachable research that shows some anomalous transfer of information in laboratory settings. Call it what you will, call it ESP, or just say, look, it's a question about why these statistical laws are being interrupted. And I find that arguing with with critics is very difficult because certain critics don't know how to agree with you, even when they do agree with you. I was having a rather contentious exchange about a year ago with an anthropologist from the University of Kansas online about ESP research. And I brought up a certain class of experiments that were conducted in the 1980s, which were really composed of just unimpeachable data. And he acknowledged right then and there in our exchange, yes, those experiments are remarkable. And I said, well, then what are we arguing about? You know, I use the term ESP. You don't have to use that term. You don't don't even have to agree with me that such a, a phenomenon exists, but wouldn't you say that it justifies further research? This research is rather inexpensive. I'm not shoving it down anyone's throat. You don't have to use my vocabulary. Wouldn't you agree that further research is warranted? And almost as we got to this point where there was no reason to be arguing, he sort of very abruptly shift shifted gears and started talking about, well, what about this? And what about that? And, you know, the train is off and running in some other direction. Whereas we had reached a point where we both basically agreed. And you find this in politics, of course, and you will find that certain skeptics and critics are incapable of agreeing with you, even when they do agree with you. And that's a mystery of human nature that I have not solved. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I find that all the time. I mean, people, often ask me how I navigate the conversations with people who don't believe in astrology. And, you know, for the sake of being super snarky, I don't anymore. Yes, yes. It's, it's not worth my time right. or energy. And if I'm, I'm happy to talk about astrology and the work that I do with anyone, if they're willing to have a civilized conversation about it, um, But I'm also, you know, if somebody is going to at a dinner party, start throwing around like, oh, so you're telling me all Libras are the same. Like, I'm not. And I'm actually, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Of course. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not trying to evangelize you. I'm not trying to convert you. If this material isn't interesting, then 
don't look at it. Right. Don't look at it, which which seems to be the last option that occurs to people. Just keep walking or don't read it or leave people alone if you don't right. like what they're offering you. But it is interesting, apropos of what we were talking about earlier, about there being this tremendous degree of energy unleashed. I would say at this moment in time, right now, present to our conversation, it's no longer intellectually serious in our culture to dismiss UFOs, for example. I don't think that was true even six months ago. I think with the release of new data and video documentation coming out of the Pentagon, coming out of the Navy, it's no longer an intellectually serious position to just dismiss UFOs and say, oh, you know, that's in the same class as unicorns or something like that. And that's a change. You know, that's a very recent change. We have images on radar that can't be written off at this point. And so it would be intellectually embarrassing for somebody to say <laughs> today, you know, oh, that's a bunch of nonsense. So there are changes afoot. It's an interesting moment. Right. I, I had a conversation with um, a, a very serious astronomer, which mm -hmm. is always very dangerous, right? Because astronomers love to hate astrology. Mm -hmm. They love to talk about how much of a bastardization it is of their practice. Um, I don't claim to be an astronomer. Mm -hmm. I am an astrologer. Mm -hmm. And we are using similar language, but we're using uh, it in one is looking at data points and one is creating narratives and looking yes. at it from a mythological and narrative point of view, right? One is interpretive. So in this conversation, we were actually having this conversation and I brought up UFOs and I said, do you believe in UFOs? And she said like, absolutely not. And I was like, how, that's like, how could you not at this point? How do you know? Yeah. And yeah. she said, well, until they're proven, I don't believe in them. And I feel like that is one of the main problems with the way that we approach, you know, that of, of science and acceptance of things is that until something is proven, it doesn't exist. Yes. But that's not true. I mean, just because we weren't able to identify what cancer was right. doesn't mean people weren't dying of cancer. Of course. We just said dying of old age because we didn't know. Exactly right. We considered it old age, right. uh, just a malady of age. It's an intellectually indefensible position. It should be an embarrassing position where there's just so much testimony coming from so many different sources and places ranging from military folk to pilots to scientists to everyday people. And we have data on radar. And it's at a point where I think one has to be able to sustain the question. You know, to me, UFOs are a question. ESP research are a question. I would actually say statistically we have so much data with regard to ESP that there, one could resist the ESP thesis and say, well, let's just continue looking and I'll settle for that. That's good enough for me. But to not be able to sustain a question, that's a real intellectual malady. I mean, that, that really keeps us from asking what's around the next hill. And I often say to people that it's not your subject matter that connotes seriousness. It's the way you approach your subject matter. There's no more seriousness in researching a new SSRI than there is in researching UFOs. Absolutely. It's just a question yeah. of whether you're impeccable about it. Absolutely. So even going back further, it's when we when we go sort of generations back and we look at the history of of occult and magic work, um, you know, there have been times, of course, when 
this has been, you know, we've had, you know, high priests and high priestesses in the courts mm-hmm. who were the magicians, you know, I guess in Crowley's definition, it would be magic with a K definition. Yes. Um, and we can talk about the distinction between those as well. Uh, and then there are the dark ages, right? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because the dark ages often coincide with conservatism and the institutions, right? Yep. Because what happens is when we have a very um, fascist institution, whether it be political or religious, and usually those also coexist, um, we do not want to give power to the people. Right? Yes. We want people to give everything to the institution and practicing one's own will mm-hmm. um, enables an individual to have the exact same amount of power as someone who is in a position of authority, mm-hmm. right? And that's a threat. That's scary because if everybody can be autonomous and be working within their own systems and energy field, then that reduces why we have dictators and yes. leaders, right, of ultimate power. Um, and over time, this has sort of waxed and waned. And it's interesting because I do think that um, – you know, when we sort of look at the moment of now, we are kind of propelling into fascism mm-hmm, again mm-hmm. and into these totalitarian uh, dictatorships, more or less. Mm-hmm. And people are right now very desperately starting to try to amass and accumulate their own energy force because even on a, a psychic, you know, collective consciousness level, we kind of know that that's if we're not careful, we're going to be heading for that. Yes, absolutely. And I think your use of the term fascism is totally defensible. I think I think it's appropriate to use that term, unfortunately. Uh, fascism can really be defined as a consort of government, military, the legal system, and corporate power. And that's certainly what Trump is attempting. Whether he succeeds or fails remains to be seen, but that is what he's attempting. And classically speaking... That's how we define fascism, whether we like it or not. So unfortunately, I think your use of that word is is well chosen and justifiable. I would say that in my work and in the writing that I do, both from a historical and practical perspective, I do want people to realize that the individual is never without resources, that we are power centers. It doesn't mean that we can affect everything. It doesn't mean that we don't live under a wide variety of laws and forces, or at least we we certainly experience a wide variety of laws and forces. But mental causation and our ability to relate to unseen principles of life do give us a power that I think we often neglect. And I want the individual to feel that he or she is never without resources. I think that's the most affirming thing that I try to do in my work. Whatever situation you're in, you may be facing forces that feel overwhelming. And at times, let's face it, they may be overwhelming, but you're never without resources. You're never without untapped powers. And I want people to explore that. And how do you, what is the best way to sort of begin that practice? Well, one of the things I'm interested in is what might be called mind metaphysics. You know, some people will use the term the secret or law of attraction or positive thinking. And all those terms are fine with me. They don't exactly match what I'm after, but I'm very, very, very interested in that field. And I have a book out called The Miracle Club, where I write about mind metaphysics as my primary spiritual commitment. I do believe that our thoughts are causative to some greater or lesser degree. 
I do believe that we have the capacity to select different experiences, different concrete realities. Some people use the term manifest. I tend to use the term select, and I attempt in the Miracle Club a theory of why this is possible. What's going on with our five senses that makes us able to outpicture our thoughts, so to speak? And I do think not only based on personal testimony and personal experience, but based on a whole range of sciences, some of which we've talked about, including ESP research, neuroplasticity, placebo studies, quantum research, and other things, I think our concept of the mind's abilities is ever-expanding. It's never retracting. And in our generation, we're seeing just incredible things in placebo studies, for example, things that never would have been considered possible even 50 years ago when the field was was already well underway. And I want people to start experimenting with that. I think people have had these synchronistic experiences that have been extraordinary. And I would say those aren't just random happenstance things, that there is some connection between what you think about, between your emotionalized thoughts and the world around you. And I really encourage people to Use those methods, affirmation, visualization, different kinds of prayer, different mantras, different focus. I write a lot about that in the Miracle Club. In a sense, the Miracle Club was my first really practical book because I wanted to share and explore some of the techniques I use myself. And in terms of, um, you know, if someone says to you, well, like I, you know, I, I wanted something to happen and it didn't work out, right? Yes. What would you say to that person who had this shitty experience. Oh yeah, no, it's a great question. It happens to all of us. I would say, first of all, we experience many laws and forces and there are all kinds of things crisscrossing in our lives that affect our experience. So I don't believe that we experience one mental super law, for example. And notice I say experience, you know, I'm not sure that it may be that life is under the umbrella, ultimately, of awareness of consciousness. It may be that, that, that consciousness is the ultimate arbiter of reality. But in terms of the physical world that we live in, we experience lots of different things. And so one can't always draw a simple line between A and B. You know, my thoughts are going to manifest. At the same time, I would also say to that person, watch very very carefully, because one of the things I'm really interested in is the question of time interval and the question of gestation period. I'm 53 years old today, and I must tell you, some of the things I'm experiencing today in my life have an uncanny congruency with wishes, dreams, desires, things I was thinking about at my earliest, earliest childhood, say ages three and four, when you first begin to form long-term memories or conscious long-term memories. And there can be just an extraordinary congruency between things that you were thinking about as a kid or years ago and things that you're experiencing now. And I always invite people to really maturely meditate on that and see whether there's some sort of symmetry going on, at least in their experience. I would also say that things that reach us through some sort of mental causation are almost certain to reach us through established channels, channels that have already been laid down. So sometimes the thing that you're looking for can arrive 
in such a routine way that you're apt to overlook it or that you're apt to say, oh, no, that can't be it. That seems too ordinary. Like, let's say a person is suffering from anxiety and let's say a certain SSRI is recommended. And I have no problem with combining pharmaceuticals, with spirituality, with meditation, with any number of things. I think everything should be in the mix. That rather ordinary suggestion could be the turnkey of whatever you're looking for, but we're apt to dismiss it because it just seems so so conventional. Right, so mundane. It's, so mundane. Yeah. Dismiss nothing. You know, Become a real observer. Watch very carefully. Also, something could reach us in ways that are totally unexpected. A person might want to mate, for example, and we get crushes on people and we say to ourselves, no, that has to be the one. It has to be Mike or it has to be Alicia or whatever it is. <laughs> You know, and it's just human nature. And I've been there myself. And we get so fixated on wanting that one person who we want to attract that we overlook the fact that that might be a disaster if we got what we want. And there might be somebody else who's making a trail to our door, maybe who won't get here for six months, but who represents something so much better and more sound and healthier than what we think we want. So what we wish for can come to us through established channels, but also in very unexpected ways. And I have no doubt that there are many people listening who are saying to themselves, wow, there was one time I wanted something, whether it was a job or a relocation or a mate, and I'm so glad I didn't get it. Absolutely. And it happens to us all the time. It seems to me there's some third factor. We get rescued sometimes from our own lack of perspective. And I don't have any theory right now as to why that is, but that's someplace my attention is going. And I'm going to be working with that over the next year. I, I agree with that completely. And I actually see that um, quite frequently come up in my clients' charts when I'm working with them that you know, they'll explain to me um, something disappointing that yes. happened. And, or or even something horrible, a loss of someone close to them, a, a family member's passing. Um, and it, at the time, we can't talk about that. You know, we have to mourn and we have to grieve and we have to feel sad when we didn't get the job or when our crush rejected us. That's absolutely, totally normal. But we have to remember that we're working with massive cycles. We're working with cycles that transcend not even our own lives, right? That go past within this orbit of all of the things that we're experiencing that mm -hmm. are sort of piggybacking off of um, one particular instance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So a loss of someone, you know, to use even, I guess, one of the most extreme examples, because grief is horrible and, and losing our loved ones is terrible. It's a terrible thing for anyone to experience. But when you look and you project out into this sort of larger understanding of all of the things that start to happen and open up, people remember things that they couldn't remember when that person was alive. Yes. Um, people are, develop new relationships. Perhaps they'll move to a different place. They'll pursue a different job. And all of these things are the life unfolding before our eyes. And we don't we don't know necessarily where things are going, mm -hmm. but because we know that we're working in these cycles and nothing is just stuck and is going to be fixed, you know, in perpetuity, mm -hmm. that we have to sort of look at things more holistically than mm -hmm. just moment by moment. Yes. Which is also part of 
of any sort of magical practice, which is the repetition of it. Yes. The repetition of, of recognizing that something is happening, not just today. And if you, you start to, if you put your intention in something and you say, I want this and then it doesn't happen tomorrow. And you're like, well, never mind, fuck that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like going to the gym once and thinking that you're going to have a six pack, right? right it's like, right. you do need to sort of live a, what I like to call a magical life yes. holistically yes. to understand why things are slotting into the places that they are at those particular times. Yes. And it's interesting. You mentioned grief. A lot of people who are suffering from grief or depression will describe the early morning hours as the most difficult hours of the day when they're sort of just coming to waking from sleep and they're kind of hovering between a, a sleep state and a consciousness state. And there's actually a particular reason for that. In sleep research nowadays, uh, that state is called hypnagogia, where you're hovering between sleep and wakefulness. And it can be a very difficult time of day because your rational defenses are down and it's very difficult to put things into perspective. However, and this is one of the things I've written about in Miracle Club and elsewhere, a lot of modern mystics before the term hypnagogia was coined had an instinct that prime time for using affirmations or visualization or self-suggestion is that state, is that state where you're hovering between sleep and wakefulness. We go through it twice in a 24-hour period when we're going to sleep at night and when we're coming to in the morning. The very reason that our rational defenses are down makes it an easier time to use suggestions or affirmations because we don't get the intellectual pushback. So that time of day can be a time of day that's very difficult, but it can also be used to your benefit for the same reasons, which is that we don't have perspective. So if you're trying to use something to recondition yourself or use something in some way to manifest or select, it can be an extraordinarily powerful time of day. And in fact, ESP researchers, I was referring to these experiments from the 80s earlier, have found that when a person can be induced into a state of comfortable sensory deprivation and relaxation, very similar to the state where we hover between sleeping and wakefulness, that's also prime time for ESP activity. There's spikes in ESP activity. So it's, it's very interesting to sort of discover these aspects about the human psyche and how they, they can be used for purposes of self-suggestion or prayer or visualize, visualization. I'm I'm a little bit blown away right now because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this corresponds literally one to one with something astrologically. No kidding. Um, which is you know our we we take our birth chart, and the birth chart is a 360 degree wheel, mm -hmm. and it's divided into 12 sections, and we read it from the horizon line counterclockwise to. Um, back to that horizon line on the left-hand side, one through 12 are the houses. Mm -hmm. And the 12th house is corresponds with just after sunrise. So when we have planets in the 12th house, it means they had just risen over the horizon. Mm -hmm. And the 12th house is the area of the chart that's connected to the psyche and the spiritual non-physical domain. Mm -hmm. And it is also the area of the chart where we keep secrets, where we experience loss, where we have grief. Um, it is could be a very depressing place, mm -hmm. um, but it is also in the most spiritually rich domain within the chart. 
So that is what dawn is in astrology. Dawn mm -hmm. is the twelfth house, and this sometimes seems like a paradox because we would like we think of a new day as like it's we're we're alive, we're here, but it's actually in that transitional period between sort of night and it, it's in that transition, right? Mm. It's it's the this moment of a boundary. It's this threshold between sub our our subconscious and our consciousness. Mm -hmm. That is where we can really tap into the connectivity of us all. Yes. So individuals who have a lot of twelfth house energy, planets in the twelfth house, often have very have have some sort of a extrasensory capability, hmm. whether it's um, being able to connect to spirits on the other side, if it is being able to, uh, you know, read body language extraordinarily well, um, to be able to make predictions. But the 12th house is an extremely spiritually rich area and it is it is that point of dawn. So when the sun just comes up right over the horizon, we're in this sort of this threshold of being awake and also being dead, so to speak. Yes, you know, yes, it's a, it's, it's the veil. It's, it's the veil, the veil exactly. The so worlds. the veil is is most thin in the twelfth house, and then the other domain that corresponds with dusk and the and the sun setting is the eighth house, and the oh. eighth house is the area that we very much connect to the occult and um, scorpionic hmm. qualities of death and transformation and rebirth. So while the 12th house is more of that sort of between worlds, in the 8th house, we're very much here, but we're starting to dip our toes into what could exist um, within. You know, what is in the dirt? What do we have to unbury in order to get the full picture? Oh, that's so interesting. I, I was never able to wrap my hands around the 8th house. I had learned when I was younger that it was a house of early death and I, I could never quite figure out what eight symbolized. Yeah, it's really fucked up. I, I, I have an eighth house stellium. So I have um, five planets in my eighth house, including my, I was also born on an eclipse. Wow. Uh, including my son's south node conjunction. Uh, oftentimes, if you're looking at the internet, you're not going to find the real good sources of information on it because- yes how do you explain these things and how do you just summarize what these are so quickly? You can't death, sex and transformation is the eighth house. Like it's so abstract, wow. you know, it has to be something that we really talk about and uncover in order to, to make sense of, which is the practice of occultism at large, yes, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> it mirrors what the work is in its entirety. Yes. Now, if memory serves me, I have Venus in my 12th house. That's what right. What would you make yes, of that? Yes, yeah. I see Venus in your 12th. So the Venus is the planet that's associated with values. Um, we can also see it as the planet of um, love and beauty, and we often associate it with our romantic partners or what we'd like to bring in. but that is sort of the surface level experience mm -hmm. with Venus. What Venus actually does is it shows us what we care most about. And it's very easy for what we care most about to then project onto our romantic mates. Oh. Um, but when we sort of remove the other from it, Venus shows us our intrinsic value system. So your Venus in Capricorn in the eighth house or in the 12th house rather is showing us that what you are very what success means to you what you value is taking very seriously that's capricorn this veil this energetic work this connection between these two dimensions um 
the problem of having Venus in the 12th house is that we often make connections with very unavailable people, right? Hmm. Because it's easy to make Venus, to turn Venus into just the planet of like, I'm attracted to that person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We become attracted to people on this emotional, spiritual, energetic level. But in order to have a relationship in the physical dimension, we need them, we need to have for them to be accountable to their physical self too. Yes. So we can't have them having affairs. We can't have us having affairs and them being our mistress. Like the 12th house, we can do all of that, right? Because we have this like incredible energetic vibe, but it doesn't check out within the parameters of how we can have a tangible relationship. Yes. So those, that's the downside of the 12th house is when we try to materialize it um, as and we try to, to, we put too much emphasis on only the non-physical form. We also need to be accountable in the physical. Too. Got you. Very interesting. But the 12th house connects to the 6th house. And it's interesting, you had talked about sort of magic things can happen to us in these very mundane ways. And we don't even recognize that being the connection point between something that we had been waiting for and something that then we receive. Because all of this... Um, really abstract, fuzzy stuff that lives in the 12th actually gets funneled into the six. The six is the portal that allows us to have, for it to take physical shape. Oh. So it's in the sixth house that we exercise, that we eat, that we brush our hair, that we go to our day job. And all of this is very mundane stuff, but how we do it and why we do it is reflected in the 12th in all of the non-physical things. Oh, how things. fascinating. I want to share with our listeners because I think I might take for granted um, the dif the difference between magic with a C and magic with a K. I use magic with a K to talk about the work that I do, but if you wouldn't mind sharing really what this distinction is, because maybe people think I'm just not a very good speller. Oh, <laughs> I use magic with a K as well. Sometimes people use magic with a C to describe uh, stage magic, you know, performance magic. And I think it was uh, Aleister Crowley who in the early 20th century first began using magic with a K to describe ceremonial magic. And, you know, you, you can opt for either one. You can go back and forth between them, but you can rest assured when you see somebody using magic with a K, they're talking about ceremonial magic. And how would you describe ceremonial magic? I would describe ceremonial magic as a ritualistic form of manifesting the will. It is a way of trying to get in touch with unseen forces through rite, ritual, spell casting. Uh, I think in a certain sense, all of our magic, all of our magic is an effort to outpicture our our thoughts, our most deeply emotionally charged thoughts and wishes and desires. So in that sense, the positive thinker and the ceremonial magician or the chaos magician are all engaged in the same thing. I don't mean this in a negative way, but it's all really a search for power in a sense, a search for individual power and some concept of the mind being a, a capillary or a channel of some cosmic laws or higher power, or higher awareness runs through all of our magical traditions. Some people will rely upon thought alone. They'll visualize, they'll 
affirm. They'll try to construct a emotionally persuasive mental picture of where they want to go. And others will work with symbols and spell work and ceremony, maybe prayer to a deity. Usually we'll describe that as ceremonial magic. Right, which works with the correspondences, which is right. something we've talked about on Stars Like Us, I yes. think, maybe not. The, the <laughs> elements and so forth. But I think we're all trying to do the same thing, which right. is get in touch with some unseen principle of power. And I, I use the term power frequently because I feel that all of our spiritual search, ultimately, whether we consider ourselves mainstream or alternative, whether we say thy will be done or my will be done or some different language so entirely, <laughs> right? so mote it be, we're all, I believe, looking for ways to expand our sense of personal agency, expand our sense of power. That doesn't mean not having obligations to other people. That doesn't mean not being in a relationship. That doesn't mean not having reciprocal relations or a sense of karma or however you want to put it. It's not an amoral or go-it-alone approach. That's not an off-ramp from a, a code of honor, a code of ethics, a code of reciprocity. But I do believe that we don't often admit to ourselves that that's what we're really looking for. Right. Absolutely. How then, you know, I had, I had mentioned this, I threw this word around a little earlier, but for those who see your work as, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's even hard for me to say this. Anything, it's, please. <laughs> it's so, it, but it's like, it's so, uh, it, it's, it's not even a language that I grew up understanding. I, for instance, grew up in like a very secular Jewish household. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. So I didn't believe there was no Satan mm -hmm. right in, in my like active reality. Yes. There was no hell. So I never was worried about going to hell. Mm -hmm. I was never scared of Satan coming and getting me. I actually, you know, I preferred the iconography in a lot of ways. Yes. I thought it was very cool. Yes. Um, but I'm, that's obviously we live in a very Christian society. Mm -hmm. um, do people think that you are doing the devil's work? Is that something you have to encounter? I do. I do encounter that. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, seen from one perspective, I get a lot less hate than you might expect. And I think part of the reason for that is that I make myself very available. Uh, I don't hide behind digital walls. My email appears on my website. It's my real email, the same one that my mother uses. <laughs> and so anybody who wants to write to me to say hi or to complain or to ask a question is very welcome to. And they do write to me. I get, I get emails from people all over the world. I get extraordinarily little hate, extraordinarily little hate. And I have actually been really surprised that there are some podcasts and shows that are ardently Christian in nature, run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church or run by conservative spiritual figures who invite me on and we have a very decent conversation. There are instances where I will get uh, hostility from people who feel that I am engaged in something sinister. And believe it or not, it more often comes from people who are within the New Age culture themselves. Who And I don't use New Age as a negative term. I apply that term to myself. To me, it just means therapeutic spirituality. But the primary criticism I get when it comes is usually from people who are within the New Age culture themselves, who are so perhaps disturbed by the idea of what I'm describing. And what I say in such cases is that 
you can't really argue with somebody's position by using premises that that person has already distanced themselves from or, or discounted. For example, my reading of Genesis 3, where Eve encounters the serpent in the garden, is that the serpent comes to Eve as a sexual, political emancipator, and the serpent doesn't lie to Eve. The serpent says, you've been told that if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll die, but in fact, you won't die, and she and Adam do not die, and Eve does not seduce Adam as as as, as the myth of feminine nature sometimes goes. He's very willing to bite the apple, and when they bite the apple, they are removed from paradise, but they are also given intellectual discrimination and creativity, and Along with that intellectual discrimination and creativity sometimes comes friction. Hence, we see the story of Cain and Abel. But I think it's very possible to look at the parable of Eve and the serpent in an entirely different way and a, and a defensible way. And I read into the Western story a kind of counter tradition that sees the forces that are sometimes associated with maleficence as actually being forces of necessary rebellion and emancipation and romanticism and assertion of the individual will. So if one wants to say, I think that's a valid reading, I think that's an invalid reading, I'm all for that. But to start from the premise that one has to accept that things that have been classified as the satanic are necessarily evil is to have a different discussion than the one that I'm involved in. So I'm always happy to talk over any of these things with anybody. I want to have a human exchange. Uh, but what I don't do is get into stone throwing because I think when you get into stone throwing, you're just really expressing a desire to tell other people what to do. And I think that's the great break in human nature is this lust that we seem to have to tell other people what to do. And when somebody's using symbols or teachings or interpretations or vocabulary, that differs from our own, we immediately want to force them back into our lane or punish them. Mm -hmm. And I have encountered that from time to time uh, within the New Age culture. Uh, people outside the New Age culture usually engage me in fairly constructive dialogues, as do many people within, of course. You know, these occurrences don't occur often, but when they occur, it's, it's usually through that avenue. I want to also talk about um, this new book that you have, this new work, um, The Power of Sex Transformation. Yes, Transmutation. Oh, I'm sorry, Transmutation, sorry. my own handwriting. <laughs> I cannot read. The Power of Sex Transmutation. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. That's a very special book to me. It's a, it's a new book. It's a very, very short book. And in The Power of Sex Transmutation, I tried to demystify the practice of using sex magic. You know, we hear the term sex magic all the time. Yeah, and it's it very sounds, buzzy right, right now. Right, it's very buzzy. It sounds very alluring. And, you know, to some people it sounds sinister. It sounds forbidden. What is it, you know? And in this book, I'm really taking a leaf out of the work of Napoleon Hill, who is the author of Think and Grow Rich, a book that is very, very underestimated in my experience, a book that is filled with extraordinary practical metaphysical lessons that I think people don't always appreciate the depth of, maybe because the title seems gauche in some way or it seems materialistic or what have you, but that book is a wealth of insight. And Napoleon Hill's chapter in Think and Grow Rich that deals with sex transmutation, chapter 13, is sort of the taboo subject of Think and Grow Rich. And he deals with the question 
of how sexual energy and sexual desire can be used to add additional energy and enthusiasm and insight and intellectual acuity to our efforts towards whatever it is we want to accomplish in the world. And what he writes has a lot in common with how sexual energy has been understood in Kabbalah, in Tantra, in Vedic teachings, as well as in more contemporary sex magic or chaos magic teachings. And the formula that he writes about, which I try to demystify, is very, very simple. And it's this. When you feel a sense of sexual desire, you can actually, through a shift in your thoughts, direct that feeling of desire away from physical satisfaction whenever you choose. It doesn't mean you're engaging in abstention or, or changing your intimate life or anything like that. But when you, at chosen moments, selected just by you, the individual, when you feel a sense of sexual desire, you can redirect your thoughts away from physical satisfaction, which is the normal route, and towards some project or undertaking that's very, very important to you in the world, whether it's a job interview, whether it's completing a piece of writing, whatever it may be. And in so doing, you can place that sexual energy, which Hill and many others have seen as the creative force of life itself, seeking expression, in the service of whatever you're trying to accomplish. And you will bring to the task greater energy, greater intellectual acumen, greater insight, greater enthusiasm, greater instinct. And the beautiful thing is you don't have to tell anybody you're doing this. You don't have to advertise this to your mate or your boyfriend or your shrink or what have you. <laughs> and it doesn't mean a change in your sexual life. It has nothing to do with abstention from sexuality. There are certain esoteric teachings that practice that, but not this one. And when we feel a sexual urge, what we're really feeling is the creative principle of life itself seeking expression. Now, most times the sexual urge will either result in some sort of physical satisfaction, or if we're in public, we might defer the physical satisfaction to a more appropriate time, or it, 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 it produces the propagation of the species. So we propagate the species, we experience uh, physical satisfaction and so on. None of that changes. But the fact is, this sexual urge that we experience is also life itself seeking to propagate itself. And that can be placed at the back of whatever creative endeavor you're dedicated to. So it's just a very simple operation of feeling the desire and at a point of your own choosing, redirecting your thoughts away from physical satisfaction or propagation and towards whatever it is that you happen to be working on. And it's something that I invite people to experiment with because in my experience, there's real truth to this practice. There's real power to this practice. So this little book, uh, The Power of Sex Transmutation, just goes through these steps, explains why they seem to work, explains some of the historical antecedents, different teachings, different esoteric teachings in history. I try to sort of bring this practice to the forefront and, and demystify it in that little book. Well, I think that that is profound. And I think that it also, I mean, it could do wonders in thinking of our relationship with desire and mm -hmm. our relationship with sexuality. And, you know, in a similar way to how it was, you know, Venus is, you know, we can see it in relationships, but that's sort of like the lowest hanging fruit of yes. interpreting Venus. Um, 
it's so easy for us to project what we want onto others. And we want to be successful or we want power or we want to be desired. And then the easiest solution to that is to think of it from a sexual lens yes, and to approach it from, you know, the lens of either wanting to be in a serious relationship or wanting to fuck somebody or whatever it Mm -hmm, is. mm -hmm. But ultimately, if we actually think about what's happening with us, it's something that we innately are desiring that doesn't really involve someone else. Someone else is just, that's where we get into trouble because then we're (laughs) anticipating that someone is going to, um, to satiate that urge. Yes. And it, you know, it, it not always will. I mean, sometimes it just sex is sex, but a lot of the time, especially when people find themselves in these destructive relationships or having, you know, in these consistent like sex and love addict cycles, a lot of that power is being misdirected Yes, and is, And what I say to clients a lot of the time when we're struggling with this is also you're bored. Mm -hmm. You know, you're Mm. there isn't a good outlet for your energy right now. So, of course, you are generating these outlets in these ways that are ultimately then hurting your ego and hurting your heart. But this is power. This is your ability to create something. This is you looking for some sort of a conduit for your directionality. and when you find that directionality, chances are you're not going to even be attracted to that person anymore <laughs> at the end of the day. Yes, I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful point. We always personify our desires in the form of other people. And I think that's why it's important not to get too fixated on how whatever it is we desire must arrive. Because right. I think everybody listening must have had this experience where they had a crush on somebody and they thought, oh my God, I must have this person, must have this person. Maybe it worked out, maybe it didn't work out. But when they found what they really wanted, suddenly the figure of their desires just receded into the distance as if he or she never existed. Absolutely. I have had that experience. It's mysterious and it should be watched. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been so absolutely extraordinary. We're going to need to have a round two of this because I still feel like I have more questions (laughs) for you and all of the work that you do. But for our listeners, where can they find you? Oh, well, they can uh, find my website at MitchHorowitz.com. They can find me on Twitter at MitchHorowitz. If you throw my name into Google, you'll find no end of things, uh, articles, lectures, books, and all kinds of goodies. Uh, I'm easy to find. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thank you. 